Welcome to Behind the Line, the podcast where you'll get untold stories from first responders and military veterans. I'm Tim Hegman. I'll be your host. My guest today is in the business of service to others, as he's both a police officer and a Marine. He joined the United States Marine Corps in 2005, just six days after graduating high school and graduated boot camp as the company honor man. He served with the 1st Battalion, 5th Marines as an infantry machine gunner from January 2006 to July 2012. During that period, he was deployed four times. He's a recipient of several awards, including the Bronze Star Medal and was awarded a Purple Heart. In 2021, during the fall of Afghanistan, he founded a nonprofit called Allied Extract, which is dedicated to aiding persons stranded in conflicted areas. He continues to serve in the Marine Corps Reserve as a gunnery sergeant. In 2015, he joined the Burbank Police Department in Southern California, where he's currently a detective and a member of the department's SWAT team. He's also an advocate for veteran and officer wellness. Please welcome to Behind the Line Podcast, Detective slash Gunnery Sergeant Aaron Denning. Welcome, Aaron. Hey, Tim. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Well, uh, great to have you here. And I'm glad this worked out and we were able to uh, get this thing going. And I know you have a busy schedule, so uh, really uh, I'm honored that you're spending some time with us today. Happy to be here. So we're going we're gonna to dig deep into your career here. But before we do, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, family, uh, where'd you grow up, hobbies, anything you want to share with yeah. us? Yeah, uh, I grew up in uh, Simi Valley, California, uh, and uh, Fillmore before that when I, was, when I was younger. But we moved to Simi uh, when I was in high school. Uh, did a little bit of everything. Uh, I've always had a pretty diverse uh, interest in just a lot of a lot of stuff. I played football, ran track. I was also like in the marching band, so I kind of got a unique uh, high school experience there. I had a pretty uh, pretty diverse friend group between the guys from the football team and all my fellow band friends. Um, went to. I always knew I wanted to be a marine uh, from from day one. Um, my uh, my dad was a my dad was an Air Force veteran, and one day he's cleaning out his garage, mm. and he pulls out this old sea bag with all his like Air Force stuff from you know back in the seventies. I remember finding it, and I was like, "This is the coolest stuff ever," and like that was the point where I was like, "I'm joining the military." Uh, you couldn't, you'd be hard pressed on a weekend to find me not wearing my dad's old camis and walking around the house with his old helmet on. Um, and, uh, it's, it's kind of a, kind of a funny story. Cause you know, for me, I was just like, oh, I'm playing, I'm playing army. Uh, you know, that's what I, what I used to call it. And, uh, you know, we were, we were kind of like latchkey kids. We would run around the, the neighborhood and, you know, uh, get with all the neighbors and, um, next door, our next door neighbor was this older, older lady named Lavetta. She wasn't, wasn't married, but had this boyfriend they'd been boyfriend, girlfriend forever. Well, her boyfriend, Albert, was a Marine who fought on Iwo Jima. Uh, he was a great guy. They were great, great friends of our family. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so one Saturday, I'm crawling around in their rose bushes with all my dad's military stuff on. And uh, Albert's like, what are you doing? I'm like, well, I'm playing Army. And he's like, well, you should play Marine. <laughs> and uh he showed me all these pictures he had. He was a combat, combat camera guy, a photographer, and he had he had all kinds of, you know, all his uniform stuff and all his pictures. And so Albert uh, is the guy that I have to thank for my desire to join the Marine Corps. Cause I went home that day. I was like, I'm joining the Marine Corps. 
and my dad is like, where did that come from? You knew Albert. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> so that was th that day. I don't remember how old I was or, or what, what the exact day is, but that day and that conversation with Albert, who was a veteran of Iwo Jima, that that's, that's what did it be, you know, he brainwashed me like, you know, Marines are tougher than, you know, everybody, you know, all the, <laughs> all the bravado that, that Marines are known for Al oh, yeah. Albert had it and, and rightfully so. Uh, but that was kind of, um, from that young age, I knew I, w I wanted to join the Marine Corps, uh, more than anything else. Um, and, uh, you know, of course, growing up in high school, uh, nine 11 happened my freshman year, uh, impacted, I think, mm. you know, obviously all of us. Um, but I remember, you know, being mad, being upset, of course, over the attack, but uh, I could have, if there was the option for me to leave high school and go to the Marine Corps right then, I wanted to do it. Like, I, I just couldn't wait to um, to be a Marine. Uh, so that's that's what I did, and my, you know, my family was very supportive of it. And, uh, you know, yeah, now, I'm blessed uh, now with my wife, and uh, she's also very supportive of it. Uh, so she's got she's got a tough job dealing with police life and uh, Marine Corps Reserve life now. So I'm a, I'm in a good spot. I can't complain. It takes a special person. <laughs> it, it does. It does. Man, yeah. People don't realize how important uh, an understanding uh, spouse just be it, um, you know married to a police officer or someone in the military, but being married to someone who's doing both at the same time, yeah. Um, yeah. you're definitely blessed and uh, she must be, must be very special. So, well, good deal. So you, you're married and children? Uh, I have three children. Uh, so Luke, uh, Benjamin and Bryn. Okay. Uh, two boys and a girl. I could not complain about the order. Um, and uh, yeah, they're, they're <laughs> all about a, about a year apart. So it's, a, it's great. It's great. We just, uh, we just, we're done with diapers finally, so that was a big, uh, big milestone for us. The next one is going to be uh, done with car seats, hopefully uh, here, you know, in a couple of years. Oh, but uh, yeah, that was, uh, you know, they they don't tell you that. Everybody, I think, when they have kids, they know like, oh, diapers are not, they're not going to be that fun. But nobody tells you how much of a pain the the car seats are, you know. So I'm looking forward to that being. Oh, <laughs> yeah. You're almost there. You're almost there. All right. So uh, let's let's move on. Let's get into to your um, your career um, in law enforcement. Your time um, as a Marine and a couple of your deployments. Okay. Um, so in 2009, in 2009, uh, while in Afghanistan, you participated in um, a hellborn assault, one of the largest ones, if not the largest, since the Vietnam War. Uh, tell us about that. What part of Afghanistan were you? Um, uh, how long of a of a force was it? How long did this operation last? And uh, what was the ultimate goal, the mission of this operation? Uh, yeah. So, uh, 2009 it was uh, it was my third deployment uh, as a Marine, um, and it was my first time in combat. Um, and what's hmm. you know interesting, uh, uh, kind of about that. I couldn't, you know, I couldn't, like I said earlier, I couldn't wait to get into the Marine Corps. And, and in my mind, I was going to go to boot camp. I was going to go through my infantry training. I was going to get to my unit. And I was going to be in war. And that didn't happen. That's not what happened for me. And I was, I was pissed off, you know, for lack of a better word. 
Um, you know, mm -hmm. my first deployment, I went to Okinawa yeah. uh, on, with a 31st Marine Expeditionary Unit, which was, it's an important mission that those guys have. Um, but we didn't see any combat. You know, we trained in Okinawa and then we went on a ship. We got to do some great stuff uh, with the, you know, working with the Filipino Marine Corps. Um, came back from that. And then my next deployment was on the 11th Marine Expeditionary Unit, which the Marine Expeditionary Unit is you go on a ship. You're kind of like the, you know, 911 force out there, just forward deployed, ready to respond to kind of whatever uh, crisis may, may develop. Um, so I spent, you know, six, seven months on ship, got to do a lot of great training, got to go to a lot of different countries. Uh, by the time I finished that deployment, I, I was 20, 21 years old. I turned 21 on that deployment and I'd been to 20, 20 oh, wow. or 30 countries, you know. Um, so it was great. It was a great opportunity, but it wasn't what I wanted. Uh, when I joined the Marine Corps, I wanted to, wanted to fight for my country. Um, and mm. I was coming up on kind of the, near the end of my first enlistment. And um, what frustrated me initially ended up being kind of a, a blessing in disguise because a lot of kind of my generation, there's, there's a lot of turnover in the military. As anybody will tell you, you do, you know, a couple of years, everybody works their enlistment, they get a couple of deployments and they're out or they go on to another unit. Well, a lot of my group, instead of getting out or going to another unit, we all extended to stay with the same battalion. Um, because we knew we got told early on, Hey, this next appointment, you guys are going to, we actually originally got told we were going to Iraq. Um, and all of us, we didn't care Iraq, Afghanistan. Mm. I don't care. Like we, we joined the Marine Corps to go fight. This is our chance. I'm staying in. So if guys didn't reenlist, they extended their enlistment. Um, there was a high, high retention rate. Um, I ended up promoting to Sergeant, uh, shortly before that deployment. Um, and I was a rifle squad leader. And um, I think when we left for that deployment to Afghanistan in 2009, I think there was only three uh, brand new Marines in my squad, which is very unusual as anybody will tell you. Normally there's, you know, significant, you know, influx of new guys every, you know, at the end of every deployment. But so many guys had stayed around to make that deployment that we ended up with a very, you know, if not, we weren't seasoned by battle, but we had trained together and we knew everybody um you know inside and out which uh would pay dividends for my squad uh it, the like implicit communication uh as a squad leader to my team leaders uh i didn't have to overly explain anything they knew what i meant when i said hey i need i need your team here your team here um and that that those seconds add up real fast uh in a gunfight when you don't have to uh overly elaborate on things and, and that's that's kind of what we had and that's i mean that's like a big difference between in the police world and, the, and the, the military world, in the police world, you're, you're going to be at a department for a couple decades, hopefully. You know everybody. You've worked together for years and years and years. It's not like that in the military. You work with a guy for a couple of years, and he goes to a new unit. You go to a new unit. Um, so we had that. We had that. Um, those reps in place. Um, so, yeah, we, we find ourselves in Afghanistan, and um, we're getting ready to do this big. It was kind of the troop surge of Afghanistan. Um, and we got there and we spent the first month at Camp Bastion, which is in Southern Afghanistan in Helmand province. And we were basically just training, just, just prepping, getting ready. And they were, they made this big deal about it. They're like, Hey, we're not, you know, we're not going to tell you the date that we're going to, we're going to, we're going to go. It's, you know, it's secret. We're going to surprise everybody. And so we're like, okay, like, you know, we were very restricted in what we were supposed to tell our families and hey, we're going to, we're going to do something big, but can't can't tell you what can't tell you when we didn't know either 
Um, but uh, yeah, what essentially happened is they, uh, three Marine battalions were simultaneously lifted into areas previously uh, not occupied uh, by NATO forces, um, at least not in a heavy, heavy presence. Uh, the area we went into is called Nawa. Um, there was a British uh, military presence there at the district center, uh, but it was a very small unit. They didn't, they didn't cover the entire district and they were essentially embattled uh, inside their little, uh, their lone patrol base there. And so what we did is our battalion flew in and we basically cleared in zone that entire district. And simultaneously with that, uh, there was another battalion, I believe it was uh, 2-8, uh, was down, uh, down south of us in Garmsir. And then I think there was another battalion north of us. Um, they hadn't lifted that many Marine infantry units uh, via helicopter into a combat zone simultaneously since the Vietnam War, which is a big, big pride point for us, you know, coming up. But we look, we look up to the Vietnam guys. Uh, you know, those guys are, those guys oh, are yeah. incredible. Um, so, you know, I remember yep. that. Many of them, yep. Yeah, the, uh, you had a couple get couple guests on here, and you know I really you know enjoyed listening to those guys. But um, I, my next door neighbor is a Vietnam guy, and I I, I love talking to him, but I, I love telling him that how how much we look up to them, you know, because they really um, I could I could talk for yeah. I could talk for a long time about those guys. It, it for us we felt like we were gonna we were following yeah, it. We're doing them proud. Go go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, you're right. I mean, they deserve the recognition often that most times, oftentimes they didn't get when they recently, no. when they came home. No, not, none at all. And, and I will say, uh, being involved with the, the VFW and, and the American Legion, there's a lot of the Vietnam guys that are, they're involved in those groups. Uh, my generation of veteran owes them a thanks because all the politics, mm. all the shenanigans that go on with the war, anti-war, whatever movements, the Vietnam guys didn't let anybody spit on us. Uh, we owe that to them. You know, they stood up for us. Right. Uh, and so I, I think we've been very fortunate in my generation uh, in terms of how we were treated when we came back from uh, what was a long war. Um, and I think uh, much of that is owed to the Vietnam veterans basically making an issue of, you know, how they were treated. So, you know, a big bro there are big brothers, but uh, we were, we were very, uh, yeah. Yep. We were very honored to, you know, when when the battalion commander said this is the largest teleborn assault since the Vietnam War, you know that that got us that got us fired up. Not that we weren't fired up to begin with, um, we were definitely we were definitely ready to go. Um, but uh, the the Marine Corps actually didn't they didn't even have enough helicopters to lift uh, everybody in there. They had to pull helicopters from the Army, from NATO for other NATO NATO partner forces. So it was kind of this mishmash. Um, you know, coming up and, and training and going on the Muse, you're used to riding on, you know, you're going to be on a CH, you know, CH-46, or they don't fly them anymore, but they, they did back then. Or you're going to be on a C, you know, CH-53, that's what Marines fly yeah. on. Um, but uh, I ended up on, uh, I ended up on a CH-47 uh, that was flown by dudes from the 160 at the SOAR, like the Special Forces dudes, like the, probably the best pilots, you know, yep. that there are. Because they just pull, they pulled them. They're, you know, our, our mortar section. They're on like a Blackhawk. I don't we need you. I don't know what unit flew them in. You know, it was just whatever bird they could get down there to us. That's that's what we were getting on, um, and uh, 
July 2nd, July 2nd. How, how long was the mission? Uh, that mission ended up being essentially, I mean, it was a clearing zone. Uh, and then we were going to hold that territory we took. So that initial push where we landed was, it's kind of a, it's kind of a blur because it was so much just walk, just walking. It was so hot, but week, week or two of clearing. Mm. And then we kind of, we kind of selected positions, company battle positions and occupied them. And we just stayed there and we built them from nothing, which was kind of unique, you know, in the, in the war on terror, in the sense, normally we, we were, you know, when units would rotate to Iraq or Afghanistan, they would relieve another unit that had established, you know, a forward operating base or a combat outpost. We didn't relieve anybody. We landed in the field um, and it, everything we had to sustain us was on our backs. Uh, and it was, Hey, resupply will come, uh, go clear, wow. go, go find the Taliban, get them out of here. Um, so yeah, it was, uh, the first few days were, were fairly intense. And, uh, I, I think, you know, we're sleeping, you know, a couple hours a night. It was, it was a long, long week or two clearing through there. Well, you know, during that time, um, obviously you were very active. Your, your unit was active. Um, you were, you were awarded the Combat Action Ribbon and uh, the Navy and Marine Corps Achievement Medal yep. with a combat distinguishing device for valor. What does that mean? Uh, what are the details of what did you do to receive that award? So uh, I'll talk. And what, and what is that award all about? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll talk to the, uh, to the Combat Action Ribbon uh, first. Uh, it's, I've known many, many outstanding Marines that, that never saw a combat. It doesn't, it's not the end all be all for who you are as a Marine, uh, who you are as a service member. Everybody has a different job. Uh, but I would be lying if I sat here and told you as, a, as an infantry guy, like you want to be tested. You, you join the Marine Corps infantry because you want to go fight for your country. And so, you know, my, my senior Marines right. were all guys who had fought in Fallujah and Ramadi and, you know, in, in my eyes at the time, whether that was an immature view or not, I was, I wasn't living up to, to what, what level they were at. Um, so you get a combat action in when you're engaging in combat with, with the enemy and there's specific criteria for it. You have to be, you know, directly targeted by enemy fire. You have to return fire, you know, or there's some other caveats to it. You know, if you get IED strike, we'll, we'll, we'll grant you that award, you know, right. You know, but um, I get I could tell you the day that I was in my first firefight. It was July second, two thousand nine. Um, that was the day we landed. We landed at about two in the morning. Um, I remember we were pissed off because we were like, "Why can't they wait? Just wait two days, and we'll go on the fourth of July, and that'd be right. even even better." But I right. I think yeah, uh, they went t they went two days early, so uh, it is what it is. But uh, we uh, we didn't sleep almost at all the night before we were sitting at the airfield uh, we knew we were going to load up the birds at probably like midnight one in the morning um everybody's adrenaline is going you know we get the uh the final talk from the co that we get a good uh captain day uh has since retired he's lieutenant colonel day he got us real fired up uh and then we get on the birds and i remember we're flying in and it's hot it's it's july it's it's super hot there we're flying in and as they start getting close, they start doing what they call like a train flight. So they get real low and to avoid enemy fire, they, you know, bank with the terrain. And I just remember seeing the moon out the back of the, uh, 
the CH-47 just, it would be kind of here and then all of a sudden it would be over here and you're looking down and you've got, you know, uh, 100 pounds of gear in your pack and everything. It, it was intense. We fly in and we're getting ready to get off the bird and they give you, you know, your, they give you your two minutes. The, the crew chief puts up his, you know, two minutes. And then when it's like 30 seconds, he taps his watch. That means take, you know, take your seatbelt off. So he starts tapping his watch. We take our belts off and I'm amped up, you know, we're, we're landing, we're landing in enemy territory. And I remember as I start to go down the ramp, I start getting hit in the face with water. And I was like, is it, is it raining? And it doesn't rain in July in, in Helmand Province. It do, doesn't, doesn't happen. I remember I was so confused. So what, what had happened is we'd hit our LZ where we were supposed to land. Um, but it was a, it was a field. It was, a, you know, like a you know, agricultural field. Well, it, they had flooded it. They had irrigated it the, the day or the night before. So there was about two or three feet of water in it. Oh. Uh, the bird tried to touch down, felt the water, and these pilots are great. So they're like, yeah, no problem. So they just back it up. They just lift up a couple feet. So we're probably two feet from the water and another two or three feet from the ground. So when I think I'm stepping off this ramp into onto, onto dirt, I take a full 30-inch step off into the air and face plant oh. in, into the water. And I've got a I've got a squad of Marines coming out after me. So we basically dogpile out of this helicopter into a into a puddle. Um, and I'll never forget my uh, my wow. assistant patrol leader, Corporal Corporal Ibanez, is a short guy. He had to get like a height waiver, join the Marine Corps. Great great dude, mean guy. Uh, he's damn near drowning in this stuff because he's got his pack on. And I remember I'm, I've got his I've got my hand on his plate carrier, like trying to keep his head out of the water. So it's a little bit of a cluster getting out of the a bird um we push up onto this uh this berm this kind of something you probably didn't you probably didn't train for that no i mean we're marines we're we're amphibious we we like we're prepared for the water but nobody was <laughs> nobody was expecting getting dropped off in a pool uh at, at that point it caught us yeah. it caught us all surprised so um yeah it was uh it, it was a it was a little bit of a shock and i had a guy one of my uh one of my saw gunners, he rolled his ankle pretty good coming out of it, coming out of that thing. Um, and to his credit, uh, Lance Corporal Rodriguez is his name. To his credit, you know, we're like, hey, dude, you need to get, it was swollen real bad. I don't remember when Doc pulled his boot off and he goes, put it back on. Uh, we're like, you, you medevac you. And he's like, I'm not going anywhere. You know, he refused, just refused to, to leave. So wow. he limped around for, yeah. Um, but, uh, we get out of this bird. It's two in the morning. We're all amped up. We've got our night vision on. We're, we think the Taliban is like waiting for us, and uh, we basically push up onto this berm, and, and we know we're we know we're clearing north. And uh, there's a little small mud mud building uh, next to us, and uh, we're like, hey, we got to clear this building and make sure there's nobody in here. So uh, I take Ivan as his team, and and I go with him. And I mean, our adrenaline's 110, you know, first time in combat for, for most of us, the vast majority of us. And uh, we go in there and, and we start clearing around into this little tiny, we thought it was a small building, right? It's got a little courtyard and we hear movement inside this, this room. So we're, we're like, okay, bad guy in there maybe. And we go in there and it's a cow, uh, like a, I don't know, dairy cow, a beef cow. And this cow is more scared of us than, than we are of it. And the cow starts moving around. And fortunately, nobody shoots the cow, but we, uh, we, were, we were damn close. Right. Uh, so 
Okay. Uh, we, we, we clear that. I up. can only imagine. Oh yeah. You know, uh, it was, a it was an intense moment. It was like, okay, we gotta, gotta bring ourselves down. Okay. We almost shot a cow. Uh, but it, it was, it was funny, but, um, yeah, we basically, once, once we landed, we wait for the sun to come up and then we start, we start clearing forward. Right. And so my platoon was, uh, in the middle of the company. Uh, we had second platoon over on our right flank bordering the, uh, Hellman river. And you have first platoon, my platoon, and I was the kind of the right flank of first platoon. And then you had third platoon, uh, out to the West towards kind of the desert. Uh, and we basically just started clearing north, kind of bounding, uh, bounding forward. Uh, a platoon or a squad at a time would clear through a field uh, and set up on uh, kind of like these little little berms, little canals. Um, and pretty early on, on the morning of uh, second, um, second platoon starts getting into firefights. They start taking contact by the river. And I'm like upset because nobody's shooting at us, right? We're just like sitting in the canal and, and like, second platoons second platoons getting everything like we're, we're all like getting very disgruntled um and you know we just have to we have to hold this is our job this is our sector we, we're clearing to the north like we gotta we gotta hold here um so the taliban at this point i think is pretty disoriented a day ago there was just a you know platoon plus a british you know five or six miles to the north and then all of a sudden on the morning of july 2nd there's just marines everywhere Right. And it, all of a sudden Marines are walking through fields, you know, so uh, they don't they don't expect it. Uh, they don't understand how many of us there are and they don't understand which way we're oriented. Um, so a group of Taliban fighters tries to ambush second platoon over to our right flank. And we, we were divided by a, a very large canal and kind of a road. That was our, our boundary that we were using as kind of a control measure between us and the other platoon. Um, and second platoon gives them what they want and and uh, chases them off pretty 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 efficiently. Um, and those guys, instead of running north away from all the Marines, they're in their head they're going to go uh, to the west. They're going to go out to the desert because they don't think there's Marines there. And so if this is the you know second platoon's here, first platoon's here, third platoon's here, instead of going this way, they they come this way over that berm uh, and through a field by a low wall. And um, we're just my entire squad sitting in a in a canal, watching our sector of fire. And I, I'll never forget um, one of my Marines was like, oh, "Those guys got guns," <laughs> and it and it was you know kind of a almost a caricature <laughs> of like what you would expect a Taliban fighter to look like black, uh, you know, man dress and turbans, and they've got the chest carriers on. And uh, we had uh, our platoon guide, a guy named Sergeant Cardenas. Um, was uh he was a veteran of uh, fallujah veteran of uh ramadi and he was he was my buddy uh he's with us and he's kind of with me and i just remember i'm in the trail i'm fucking shoot him uh so we start firing and before i can even get those words out of my mouth cardinez is firing uh grenades through his 203 and it was about maybe 15 to 30 seconds of fire and they see us they they start cranking rounds back at us but it's, it's too late we have a we have a position of advantage and it's it's over, it's over pretty quick. And I remember just, Hey, ceasefire, you know, cut our fires off. And I start passing information to them, you know, the tune commander over, over the radio. Hey, we just had contact. It's what happened. Um, so the platoon commander makes his way down, down the line towards us. And then pretty soon here comes the company commander. And uh, I, I remember the, you know, he's got the fire support team, all these guys with radios with them. What, what happened? You know, 
like second platoon chased these idiots in front of us and they they got shot so uh but i'll i'll never i'll never forget one of the uh the fist team guys who's our weapons platoon sergeant he goes this is the calmest i've ever seen a group of marines after the first time they've been in a gunfight and uh i just remember being being super proud of uh, proud of my guys everybody was everybody was disciplined there was no hmm. guys weren't just cranking off rounds you know randomly it was 15 to 30 seconds of precision brutality directed at the enemy and then it was over and then when the command to stop firing came out everybody everybody stopped firing and, and we were good to go and uh, uh i remember cardenas comes up to me and you know uh takes my picture but i'm sitting in this ditch he takes my picture he's like you're gonna you're gonna thank me for this picture later uh and i i still have it i'm, I'm not sure i may or may not send it <laughs> to you but uh yeah and i he was right he was right so that was it. That was the that was on my first experience uh, in a firefight. Um, kind of unfair odds, but man, I'm all right with that. Yeah, something you, like you said, you'll never forget. You know, so um, and and it speaks volumes to your leadership. And like you said, it, the first time for many of you to be in combat, um, but so many of you chose to stay. And it goes back to training. You oftentimes, even in police work, as you know, you know, you train, train, train. You may never see, uh, you may never have been be involved in a shooting as a police officer, uh, but you train, train, train. And if it happens, you go right back to you know that what you uh, trained for, you studied for. That repetitiveness kicks in. So it sounds like that's what happened with you guys. Yeah, yeah. Everybody, I mean, everybody was. Uh, it's. It was a long time ago, and it's still it's 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 just humbling to have been a part of that that group of men, and uh, you know the way they conducted themselves under. Uh, when you're young, you kind of don't realize how crazy those situations are, um, and it, it didn't. You know, a lot of those guys they were young, but a lot of those guys had you know wives and kids. You know, Marines get married young; they had mm. kids young, uh, and, and I never really appreciated the sacrifice that those guys were making until I had my own kids, and it kind of. Uh, Kind of was like a shocking moment for me i'm like yeah these guys because when i was i didn't get married till i was you know older uh i didn't have kids so i was you know almost 30. uh but these guys are 18 19 20 years old they got kids uh that they left and you know what for me when i was there i was like you know full of piss and vinegar i'm invincible right in my first deployment uh it wasn't until i had my own kids where you realize kind of what you'd leave behind and 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 the risk that you're taking that that really oh yeah you know i have uh it gave me newfound respect for those guys and the sacrifices they were making their family was making just by being there just by putting themselves in that situation um so yeah it's incredible yeah it's pretty yeah the sacrifices that uh you know they make a lot of people may not even realize or they take for granted or they know about it but they don't really fully appreciate it because they have never experienced it so the fact that you uh, did experience it and had that new appreciation uh, that goes a long way. So, uh, well, it sounds like that worked out for you guys. What about the other award that you received, the uh, Navy Marine Corps Achievement Medal? Yeah. So, uh, is that part of that, or is there something different? Uh, yeah, different, different engagement. Um, so, fast forward a couple months through that deployment, um, and we had, um, you know, we had kind of like established a company, uh, a, a company outpost, like a bait, you know, we had our, we had a platoon there and we had our headquarters element. We had our mortar firing positions, kind of like our central hub. 
but then we had two smaller uh, platoon, what we call patrol bases, which is essentially like, you know, a, a, a little little tiny mini fob almost, right? Like, uh, so my platoon was manning a forward operating base. Uh, I can't remember how, probably five or six kilometers north northeast of the um, the company outpost. Uh, Cop, we called it Cop Apache. Was the company outpost? That's we were Alpha Company, so our our call sign was Apache. Um, our patrol base that we occupied, we, we named it, they renamed it something. They renamed it after like an Afghan dude later. Uh, but when, we, when I was there, when we founded it, it was, uh, uh, PB outlaw is what we called it. Um, and PB outlaw was a, a somewhat large compound, a house, uh, that we had cleared. My platoon had found early on during the initial clearing operation. And it was a like a Taliban commander's house, basically. We found a huge cache of weapons, uh, anti-tank mines, machine gun—you you name it—we found it there. Uh, and they had fled; he had fled prior to our arrival. So uh, we realized what we had. We kind of we basically took it. We're like, okay, well, this is property of the United States Marine Corps now. Uh, your compound and everything. Uh, it became kind of like a you know, <laughs> became a patrol base for us, where we we conducted operations from that patrol base in the northern part of our company's uh, area of operations. Um, so some point later later on in the deployment, um, we're, at, we're at Cop Outlaw or PB Outlaw. Things had kind of died down a little bit, you know, after the initial uh, days there. Uh, I think they realized uh, real quick, like there's a bunch of Marines here and these guys are, these guys are here to kill us. Uh, so they kind of pulled out uh, and they stopped uh, direct uh, mm. direct attacks because it wasn't it wasn't working out for them. Um, but they're you know they're smart and they they're able to move about in the populace and so um, they start trying to find areas where they can affect us right and they start placing IEDs they start you know doing that thing the asymmetrical warfare as we call it. Um, well, one day you know we're uh, we're sending out you know we send out a security patrol kind of somewhat routine patrol um goes out and so uh when you're when you're in a patrol base right for a marine marine rifle squad or platoon you have three rifle squads right 12 13 guys plus you know maybe a machine gun team whatever so 13 to 15 guys in each squad you're working on eight hour shift rotations and it's eight hour rotations for until the deployment ends you come back to america right so you do eight hours on patrol eight hours on post where you're guarding the base and then eight hours on rest plan where you can sleep. But when you're on rest plan, you're also the, the quick react force. So something happens, hey, get up, get your gear on, and, and we gotta go. So that was that was the battle rhythm that we, that we were using on that deployment. So my squad, uh, we get off our rest plan, we go on to, we go on to post. So now we're guarding uh, patrol base outlaw. Um, a security patrol goes in, it's kind of like midday, that, that eight hour rotation, we would shift it sometimes, so you're never, never work in the same, you know, shift. It just, it always kind of rotates, right? Cause really, you know, the way it works out. So we wake up and um, a patrol goes out and my platoon commander goes with that patrol, a guy named Greg Kosh. He's a, he was a Lieutenant then. Uh, he, we deployed together again in 2011. He was a captain. Uh, he's still in now. He's in the reserves now. And he, he's a major, he's a, he's a recon guy now, but Great, great dude, great platoon commander. He goes out with a squad on a security patrol. Um, they get out there and they get into a contact. They get into 
start taking rounds, a little bit of a firefight. And so they're going to do what, what a Marine squad's going to do. And they're going to go aggress that firefight and deal with that issue and, and try and kill bad guys. Um, they call for a react team for the quick react team. So the other squad goes out. I think it was third squad was on rest. They get up, they go out and our platoon sergeant goes out with them. And in staff art Castro goes out with them and, you know, they've got their squad leader and stuff like that. They go out there to deal with, uh, you know, help back up, uh, First squad. I, I was I was second squad. And so that leaves my squad defending PV Outlaw. Uh, my Marines are on post. They're in the bunkers. They're guarding the the base while everybody's gone. And I'm now the senior man inside of that patrol base. So when your squad was on post, you're the, we call it the sergeant of the guard. You're the sergeant of the guard. You're in, you're in charge of the, the dudes guarding the post. And in, if everybody else leaves, you're, you're in charge of that. You're in charge of that base, essentially. So what had happened is it was deliberate. They, they, Taliban's not stupid. They figured out kind of our rhythm of battle. They figured out, okay, like, you know, about every eight hours, whatever. So they waited essentially to like, like bad guys do in the police world. They waited until shift change. Another squad went out. They let them get pretty far away. And, and they had a guy counting uh, Marines out of the patrol base. They have a rough idea. Mm-hmm. There's 30 or 40 guys in there. They, they have a rough idea of how many Marines are in there. They get, uh, first squad into just enough of a, a firefight where the react team goes out and they count those Marines out. And so now they know, Hey, they're down to a third of their guys in there. This is as good as we're going to get it. Cause they're never going to, they're never going to drop below this. And so, uh, they attack our, our patrol base when, uh, their, their communications were good, right? Right about when third squad gets out the first squad and they're far away. That's when they attack the patrol base. Um, we had, um, well, yeah, we, we, we had um, a number of guys, we you know, two guys in every little little bunker, little little position. And then we would push out like a four man team just 100 meters down the road just to make sure, just to check, spot check random vehicles that might try and drive by the front of the patrol base, whatever. Um, so I'm actually uh, using the bathroom uh, when this happens. Um, and as anybody can tell you that, that operated in like austere military environment, our bathroom is a a, tre- a slit trench that's dug into the ground. Uh, it's just a hole that you kind of like squat over. So I, that's that's where I'm at. I've, I'm not wearing my body armor or anything. I've got a radio. I've got my rifle. Um, and I just hear all hell break loose. I hear rounds start ripping off. Uh, it's go it's going down. And I hear over my over my uh, 153, my little, little handheld radio, every post, hey, we're taking fire. You know, they start lighting up the patrol base and they're lighting up those... Uh, those four guys that are out there. And I think it was Ivan as his team that's out there. Um, and, you know, the first thing that pops in my head is, mm. oh, shit, right? Like, stop what I'm doing. I get up, pull my pants up, and and run out of the latrine area. Um, and I make a stupid decision. Because uh, in my mind, I'm like, I'm, we're in a fight. Like, I need to get to where I can see what is happening. Um, so that spot is on top of the roof of the the main building in this little car and the compound's small it's it's maybe 50 by 50 yards it's 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 a wall and then it's a it's a square building right in the middle and like our main post was a sandbag bunker on top of that roof uh with a machine gun in it Uh, but that roof is not like it's a mud building so it's not like if you see like videos and stuff from you know iraq or other countries they have like a lip like a wall this has no lip it's just a flat roof if I if I stand up, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna go down. Uh, there are just rounds cracking over my head, um, and Hernandez is in this 
this post. He's on this uh, Mark 19, which is a grenade belt fed, fully automatic uh, grenade machine gun. It's mounted on this dead Humvee that we have uh, backed up that we use it. We use it essentially like a little improvised bunker. Hmm. Um, Hernandez starts cranking off rounds uh, and putting them right on target. Um, and I, I'm not sure if I if you got that part before. Hernandez had I've made a couple of I made a couple new guy mistakes. He was kind of on my naughty list uh, yeah. earlier in the deployment, you know. So I, uh, I I was hard on I was hard on him, um, and I, I remember at first I was worried. I was like, oh, God, Hernandez is on the on the mark. I'm I'm dead. Um, and Hernandez uh, absolutely just starts decimating everybody stupid enough to be in a tree line and shooting at us. Um, hmm. Uh, Mark 19, it's a 40 millimeter grenade. It's a devastating weapon. It, it ends firefights. And that's basically what Hernandez did is he ended everybody that was exposed in that, in that tree line. Uh, gives me enough time to get up, get to the bunker, establish uh, communications. By now we've got uh, the other squads. They start working their way back. They break contact. Um, I'm not sure if he caught, I, I was talking about uh, Tac Tacospatia. I think I'm saying that right. Yes, you did. Yes. Yeah. Um, that whole, this whole thing feels like it was a half hour in my head when it's happening. But, mm. you know, at some point I'm able to get back down off the roof, go get my kit back on, get back up to the roof. Um, and everybody, every single Marine inside that patrol base is, is firing now from their, their positions. Um, I, when it was all said and done, it, it was hours later, uh, hours wow. later. Uh, because the other squads, they come back and there's uh, there was a kind of like this rat's nest of a village. You know, I say rat's nest. It looks like a rat maze, like the way they build some of these villages. It's just all these like walls, you know, yeah. it, it's mud walls. And it was kind of backed up to the eastern side of our patrol base. And, and they're clearing through there. Um, but, yeah, I just had no, like, my, the time distortion was, was insane. Uh, and I remember when it was all said and done, I go, I start trying to make sure I have all my gear. And I've got like one magazine left and I had six on my, on my, you know, so I'd done several mag changes at some point throughout this thing. I don't even know where my magazines are. They're, they're just, they're somewhere. God. Yeah. Yeah. And no recollection. I don't remember doing a single mag change. Uh, so it's, it's incredible. The, the physiological reactions that, that the human body has under that type of stress and those, those type of situations. Um, but, um, yeah, that for that that engagement, I think was a big. Uh, I think that was why I was uh, given given the uh, Navy Achievement Medal for Valor. Hundred uh, percent, that uh, engagement was mostly my Marines uh, doing their job. Um, you know, we don't. Uh, as a military leader, I, I, I it's always giving me heartburn. I think the the some of the younger guys like. They don't always get recognized for their their acts of bravery, their acts of heroism, because the right person doesn't see it, right? Like, you know, right. my boss heard me on the radio and heard, you know, you know, the chaos. So he thinks, oh, Sergeant Denning's out there doing doing work, right? And I, I was, um, but uh, we were able to get uh, Lance Corporal Hernandez the same award that I got from that engagement. Oh, or Valor, well deserved, and it was very well deserved. And he is still in the Marine Corps today. I think he's a staff sergeant. Uh, and he was, we can talk about it later, but he was actually at the uh, final, uh, the fall at uh, Hamid Karzai Airport. He was there. Um, wow. He's become quite the, quite the Marine. Very proud of him. So, good, good. How old was he during that de deployment? Eight, 18, like 18, 19. Uh, 
yeah yeah if that crazy yeah crazy yeah you know it's amazing what people when you least expect somebody to do something because you just don't have the confidence in them or, or whatever and you go whoa pleasantly surprised dude saved my life yeah i was and i was i was hard on i was hard on my guys when they messed up but i was always fair and i never mm-hmm. I, I don't think i ever stopped you know i never gave up on any of them. i never writ, wrote any of them off everybody that got on that plane to fly to afghanistan to go to war yeah there, there was varying degrees of skill and competency but everybody should have been there um and you know it's uh it's like you said, you can't you can't ever give up on on your people, right? Because sometimes the guy you least expected is going to be the guy that you, maybe it's the reason you come home. That's exactly right, and so he, and he gave you that opportunity to, to to regroup and get some equipment that you needed. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah, for sure. All right, um, well, let's move on. So, uh, well, real quick, let me ask you this: so um, during that um, deployment. How many Marines were killed? From our battalion, uh, four Marines were killed. Four um, Marines were killed. And one of those Marines, was that uh, Lance Corporal Donald Hogan? Or was, he, was that? Yes. Yeah. Lance, Corp- and, 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 Lance Corporal Hogan was, was uh, the, the only Marine from Alpha Company that was killed on that deployment. Uh, you know, it's, um, yeah, that's uh, very sad. Um, any of them. Um, but uh, losing their life. Um, you know, but sacrificing their so much their lives for our country. Um, what did um, what did Lance Corporal Hogan? Uh, he received the award as well. What did he do to uh, receive that? So Lance Corporal Hogan um, eventually, uh, several years later, was recognized with the uh, the Navy Cross, um, mm. and. Um, Lance, Cor- Lance Corporal Hogan was, it was his first deployment. Uh, he was a Marine with 2nd Platoon. Uh, he was in, uh, I forget exactly which squad, but his squad leader was this guy named uh, Rocky Horde, who was my, my friend, another sergeant. Hmm. Um, and we would, uh, we would kind of rotate out of these patrol bases. You know, we'd be, we'd man uh, PB Outlaw for a month or a few weeks, and then we would rotate back the company position where there's a little bit better you know amenities if you will um and so we were we were doing one of those rotations uh we had pushed up to uh pb outlaw to relieve them uh and they were pushing back down to top apache to be at the uh, you know the bigger the bigger uh outpost uh and so you do that one squad at a time a squad will go from apache up to uh, outlaw and then a squad will go from outlaw down to Apache and you just mm. throughout the day and everybody takes a different route and you know you do things to try and um, mitigate the enemy's ability to, to anticipate where you're going to be or what you're doing um, so my squad gets up to it, like I said it was I don't remember the exact distance it was several kilometers uh, but it's you know it's hot and you're you're carrying a lot of gear with you up there um, we get up there, my squad, and uh, we're rotating into our rest plan. Uh, and Rocky Horde and his squad, which uh, Hogan was in, uh, they depart. So we swap out with them, we tag out with them, and they start going back back down south to Comp Apache. Um, Donald was a point man for his squad. Um, he was very skilled. Um, I wasn't present on the, on this patrol when it happened. As, as I mentioned, we had 
we had relieved them and we were we were taking our gear off and trying to go to sleep and it was the afternoon it was hot it's not you know not easy to to go to sleep um and i'll never forget we just, we just heard an explosion because you hear those ideas when they go off and you know whenever that happens everybody would reach everybody that has a radio reaches over and turns like kind of similar to you know police work ever you know field emergency everybody turn on the radio what is it same thing uh we hear the explosion i turn on my radio and i'm waiting to hear from second platoon to hear what happened hmm. and i i don't hear anything um and then somebody comes up the the apl uh the assistant patrol leader so not 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 the squad leader who should be on the radio somebody else comes on and it's just chaos uh he's, we've got multiple guys down get over here um it's you know it's bad so everybody in our platoon that's up there we start throwing our gear on and it's all our platoon commander can do to keep us from just running out of this patrol base and just running down the road to get there um we get our gear on pretty quick but where they got got hit it was closer to cop apache than it was to outlaw um, so the company commander makes the determination, hey, uh, first platoon, uh, hold at this end. There was an intersection north of the, um, the blast site. Hold there. Uh, look, for, look for a trigger man. Um, and mm -hmm. so, so we do, we're, we're there. Basically, every, every vehicle, every person that comes by is getting, getting talked to, getting, you know, we're tearing through the vehicles. Um, and we kind of hear, we're listening on the radio to the, the Kazavak as things are going. We're trying to figure out who's, who's hit, who's not hit. Um, and, uh, it was, it was, it was chaotic. We, we knew, we knew that somebody was dead. We didn't know who, um, and we knew that a lot, several Marines were hurt. Um, as I understand what happened, uh, it, at that time in the AO, the, uh, the IEDs were, uh, command detonated with like a pull string, like a kite string. Uh, and they would basically build these improvised claymores, uh, out of a claymore is like a directional fragmentation mine. Um, so they take a jug, they pack it full of homemade explosive and they, they glue like a bunch of nuts and bolts to one side of it and they'll bury them in the road, kind of facing down the road where they think Marines are going to walk. And then a guy pulls a string and it, it, it blows. Hmm. Um, Hogan squad is going southbound towards Cop Apache and they bury, they bury that little kite string kind of in the ground, right? O over the road. They're going down this small, uh, road, um, the string gets pulled right in front of uh, Donald. Um, it doesn't immediately detonate. Um, probably in that moment, like two, two or three feet to Donald's left-hand side is a canal, a very deep canal. If he jumps to his left, he goes in that canal and he's, he's alive today. Uh, Donald doesn't do that. He turns around. Because uh, all the Marines are kind of staggered behind him in a, in, a, in a tactical column. And he starts yelling, ID, ID, ID. And he grabs uh, the Marine behind him and tries to shove him out of the way. Mm. Um, wow. I think several several Marines are wounded pretty pretty bad. Um, Donald absorbs most of the blast and is killed. Uh, and saves probably three or four guys behind him. Because as soon as they hear Donald yelling, people start bailing off, trying to get off the road. Um, there's, um, I'm very close with Donald's family. They, they live in San Clemente. They, they, uh, hmm. you know, they lost, they lost their son on that deployment and that's, 
that's something that you you don't understand that type of pain until you have kids and then even then you don't really understand it unless you lose one uh, i don't i don't think um what i will say about the hogans is uh they took something that is without a doubt the one of the darkest things that can happen to a to a parent and uh they just decided that every marine is now their kid as well wow. um anytime that we have had any crisis or family event um the hogans uh they're like i don't they're like they're second parents to me uh they've wow. been there for us they've been there for other marines um we see them pretty regularly we go down to pendleton quite a bit to to camp and uh if uh, one time I didn't call him when I went down there with my family and I got a pretty, pretty nasty message from Jim Hogan, <laughs> you better not ever come down here without, without calling us. So they're, they're, they're great people. Um, yeah. But I'll, I'll never forget. Uh, we were, we were there at the, uh, the award ceremony a couple of years later when they presented uh, the Hogan's with their sons, uh, Navy Cross and uh, our battalion commander, our former battalion commander spoke and he said, uh, yeah, I'm summarizing, but uh, it in those type of moments, those 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 things, he didn't have time to think and decide. I'm going to do something. I'm going to do something honorable and brave and heroic. That was in him because there was no time to think. Yeah. Uh, right. He just acted. That was uh, ingrained in him. He was a, a man and a marine. So, um, you know, we'll always mourn his loss, but. Um, you know, I count myself uh, fortunate to have been able to have known uh, people people like Donald. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, you're right. It's it's in people. You know, just instinct to save somebody else and you know sacrifice their lives or their life for someone, and they just act on it. Yeah. Like you said, no, no time to think. Yeah. And uh, you know, unfortunately, not everybody does that but there's a great number of people who do do that and they deserve to be recognized. Yeah. So thank you for sharing that story. Yeah. Uh, let's move on to okay. uh, 2011. 2011. Okay. You deployed again. You deployed again to uh, Afghanistan. And, you know, prior to us talking uh, today, I uh, did some research. You sent me some information that I, that I read and found it fascinating. But with that said, you know, um, 25 Marines uh, of the unit that your unit was going to replace uh, were killed in their seven-month seven month deployment, which is not a long time, no. but it's a lot of Marines yeah. uh, who were killed in that short period of time. So knowing this um, and the fact that you guys were ready to deploy to one of the most dangerous parts of Afghanistan, um, I, I can't even imagine. What are your thoughts What's your mindset and what do you do to prepare knowing you're going to that area and understanding what's happened before you are going to arrive? So um, the, the unit that was there before us, uh, 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines, uh, that's our that's our sister battalion. Uh, I was with 1st Battalion, 5th Marines, and then you have 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines. And there's, there's a lot of history between those two units. They're both 5th Marine Regiment units. Um, you know, I had friends in that unit. Um, you know, we, we, we knew that they were in a, they were in a real good fight. Hmm. Um, as they're engaged in their deployment and we're getting ready for our deployment, um, 
I, my time essentially in the battalion was kind of kind of up. It's like, hey, if you want to leave the unit and go to a different, you know, a B billet or go be an instructor somewhere for a while, you know, you, you can. Uh, and my my company commander from the 2009 deployment, a guy named Lance Day, uh, who's uh, he's since retired. Uh, he's a he's a firefighter uh, in Orange County now. Um, he was uh, without a doubt the the one of the best company commanders I ever had. A great great Marine officer. Uh, he had been slated uh, for the 2011 deployment as the commander of the advisor team. The advisor teams are embedded with the Afghan National Army, um, and he asked me, "Hey, are you are you is that something you're interested in?" And I said, "Absolutely." And uh, Lance Day is a guy I would fo- I would follow that man uh, anywhere. Uh, so I I was uh, I was on board. Uh, he got me pulled over to that team, um, small team. And it's kind of what I wanted. I wanted something different, kind of change things up. It was going to be a you know a little bit of a different feel. Um, but we knew as we were working our way through our, our pre-deployment workup uh, that we were going to be in we were going to be in for a fight. It was going to be different than Nawa. Nawa, in the 09 deployment, we showed up and there was a couple days where they pushed back and we, for lack of a word, we we kicked the shit out of them. And then they went to you know they, it took them a while to recover from that. Sangin was a contested area. The Taliban had essentially total freedom of movement. Um, for years, they had it had been a stronghold. I, I think the British occupied it before the Marine Corps came in, um, mm. and the most I, I could be mistaken, but I think the most casualties that the British sustained in Afghanistan was all was all, all insane. Um, so we knew we knew that three five was in a fight, and we knew that we were going to have to be ready ready for a fight. And um, we had uh, you know, it's, like I said, uh, Lance Day is one of the best commanders I've ever worked for, our battalion commander, a guy named Tom Savage, who's a general now, uh, the best battalion commander I've ever worked for. They, those guys had a good plan. Uh, we had a we had a tough, we had a high intensity training leading up to that. Uh, it wasn't fun. We weren't we weren't home a lot. We didn't have a lot of time off, um, but it was necessary. Um, those guys knew what they were in for. I think uh, General Savage and Lance Day, they were both veterans of Fallujah uh, earlier. So they knew they knew what was coming uh, and they knew how to how to get us ready for it. Uh, I, I'm not going to say that it was grim uh, when we were preparing for it, but but we knew it was different than the 09 deployment. Uh, and we knew that probably more of us weren't weren't coming home uh, this time around. Hmm. Um, but we were also with that. We were we were angry. Um, yeah. You know, yeah, three three five was was taking it taking it on, on the jaw and, and making no mistake about it. Those guys were giving it back. Those guys were, yeah, those guys were were giving better than they were receiving. But you know, again, in in, in our mind, we were going to go in there and we were going to we were going to avenge those guys. Um. So yeah, it was it was grim, but we also knew, hey, you know what? There's people there. And there's they're bad guys and they need to die. And uh, yeah, the United States Marine Corps were were the ones that are going to do it. Um. So that was kind of the the mentality, uh, getting ready and, and going into the, into that deployment. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, you know what happened already. Um, it's was already contested, um, and you like you said, there's a chance you guys knew there's a chance not everybody's coming home. Um, but a motivating factor is you were pissed off of yep. what happened prior to you guys getting there. So, um, how long was that deployment? Seven months. 
Seven months. That was okay. Seven months. Yep. And um, how many Marines during that um, deployment were killed? So for for us, uh, we had seventeen Marines killed in action, uh, and we had uh, one hundred ninety, close to two hundred Marines and sailors wounded uh, during that during that deployment. Wow, seven months. Yeah, and, and I. I talk about this, at, you know, sometimes at work with, with, with guys, um, we have a lot of like, you know, interesting conversations. You think about, um, you know, any departments that's lost an officer, how profound that is and how that ripples through that department for years and years and years to come, mm-hmm. w- which is a good thing. It's, it's a departmental way of healing and, and, uh, recognizing that trauma. Um, you can't imagine losing 17 officers in seven no. months, you know, and, and yeah, there's, there's about a thousand guys in a Marine battalion, so it's bigger, right? But even you take a department of a thousand people and you take 17 officers in seven months and it's not, that's not good. Um, it's not good. It was, it was tough. It was hard on us. Um, it was, uh, that deployment was the formative defining moment of, of my life. I, I think, um, yeah, because it was not easy to, to bounce back from that. Yeah. Again, I, I say it all the time. I can only imagine, you know, I can only imagine. Um, well, I'm sorry that. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I, I talk, I, I say that uh, and I say that with, you know, we were talking earlier in the podcast about the Vietnam guys and, the, and those guys had it. Those guys had it so much worse than we did because those numbers are nothing compared to what, what they dealt with. And it's, it's funny. Cause I, I'll talk to my, my neighbor, Bill, who's an army tanker in Vietnam. And, uh, you know, I'll say, uh, we'll talk about, we'll have a big Memorial day barbecue every year. And, and we, we talk and, and he's like, man, I can't believe you guys were out there in the desert. And I'm like, dude, I, what we did was nothing compared <laughs> to what you guys did. And he's like, dude, they were burying IEDs everywhere. So we have like an argument back and forth over, over who had it worse, but it's, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's 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 a lot to deal with. It's you know, it's uh, it was difficult. It was uh, it was a totally different world than than Nava was. There was no, uh, there was areas in Sangin where there was no uh, civilian populace. We would the Marines we would start walking that way towards some of these villages, and uh, we would see a single file line walking out, and it was all the women and children. And we knew this was there's bad guys and there's good guys here. And no one else. Yeah. Um, we're gonna fight, and the Taliban was there to fight, and we were there to fight, and that's that's what we did for seven months. Wow. Well, during that deployment, you know, um, you were injured during that deployment, am I right? Yes. Yeah. And so you received a Purple Heart. Yep. Uh, but you also received the Bronze Star Medal. Yeah. And um, what did you do? Now, uh, to receive that, now, if I can say this first, yeah, you know, you come across, which I, I respect so much as being humble. Uh, and I think a lot of people, um, in the, in the, the military, uh, and first responders, I think a lot who have experienced, you know, traumatic events, been involved in critical incidents, have, uh, gone above and beyond, um, are very humble. And uh, I don't think you're any different, but I'm asking you, please, uh, because people want to hear what, what happened. Um, try not to be so humble. How did you, 
<laughs> how did you, what did you do to receive the bronze star? So there was a, there was a couple of, uh, there was a couple of critical, critical incidents, uh, as we would say in the law enforcement world. Uh, there's a couple of, uh, pretty, pretty gnarly days that, that deployment, like I said, was, uh, 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 it was something else. Uh, I think I took part in close to 60 different combat operations. I helped lead 30 partnered combat patrols with the Afghan army and the, um, uh, and the Marine, uh, unit, which is Bravo company, uh, one five. Uh, we did several clearing zones, which clearing zone is, uh, we're just going to, we're just going to fight each other. We're going to clear, we're going to, we're going to line up and we're going to, we're going to kill these guys. Hmm. Um, I, I normally walk around somewhere between, uh, 185 and 200, depending on, uh, how disciplined I have or haven't been. Uh, I came back from this deployment. I weighed 150 pounds. Wow. Um, I just looked sunken, sunken in. Uh, there was no rest. There was no, um, it was just every day. Um, on the advisor team, um, we were a little four, four man team. So you had a Marine officer who was a Lieutenant then, but uh, got out as a captain, Captain Brian Vandenberg. Then you had a senior enlisted guy and that was me on our team. Uh, you had a corpsman, which uh, was HM3 uh, Raymond. Um, and then we had a, uh, like a Lance Corporal, like a driver, a guy to help us drive the, the vehicle. And that was uh, Lance Corporal Melgarejo. Uh, and we were embedded uh, with a Afghan uh, National Army company. Um, we lived with them, we ate their food. Uh, we went on patrols with them and our job was to help train them, get them ready, help develop their plans for offensive operations, help integrate them with the Marines during those operations and, and basically try and get them ready to take over the defense of their own country when we left. Hmm. Um, it was very rewarding. It was also very frustrating uh, at times. Uh, we had several interpreters just quit because people start dying and the interpreters are essentially civilian, uh, like Afghan guys that got contracted by the government. They, they I don't want to be insane. I don't want to be here. Um, it was, uh, it was a unique experience. Um, one that I'm very grateful for. I think very highly of, uh, the people of Afghanistan. I think very highly of a lot of the Afghan army soldiers that I fought with. I don't think highly of all of them, but. It, it, they're, they're just like us. They're just like us in a, in a lot of ways. It's just kind of more extreme because their military is less uh, developed than ours, right? So the guys that are that are good, are they're really good. The guys that are bad, well, they're they're really bad because they have almost mm. no training compared to us. Wow. Um. So we would go on. We would go on these patrols, these operations, and um, we would uh, kind of split up the Afghan army guys to the various Marine platoons, and uh, it. As a Marine infantry guy, as a sergeant, it was it was great because I wasn't in charge of a squad. I wasn't beholden to whatever that squad was doing. I just kind of was there to make sure the Afghan dudes were all right and like integrating properly and and help them and deal deal with that, you know, and uh, kind of be a buffer between the two. Um, but because we um, we wouldn't always operate with a Marine unit, we would sometimes operate with just the Afghan guys. We would go out with them. So basically whatever weapons, equipment I asked for, they gave me, uh, I was like, I need rockets. I need grenade launchers. I need whatever. They're like, yeah, you got it. You got it. You got it. Um, and so when 
you know, the firefights would happen or whatever, I could just basically go do whatever. I was kind of like a, like a middle linebacker. I'd go fill in the gap wherever I needed to be. I could go to the point of friction and try and, try and help, help out that, uh, that, you know, the young, younger squad leader that was, that was dealing with it. So May, uh, 22nd of 2011, we were doing a big clearing operation. Um, stepped off early. Uh, we, we basically didn't patrol at night in Sangin because there were so many IEDs. Uh, yeah. it was, uh, and there was, uh, I talked earlier about like the kite string, uh, directional fragmentation things. That's not what we had in saying. What's saying what we had is uh, pressure plates. You take a 10 gallon drug, you pack it full of homemade explosive. You put a pressure plate over the top of it, bury it. Marine steps on it, blows his legs off. Uh, and then small arms ambush, uh, you know, they start shooting at us while we try and get to the casualty. That, that was what was happening every damn near every day. Um, so, we wait for daylight. It's 5.45, 6 a.m. We step off. By this point, we've been up probably since 4, you know, getting up, getting our gear ready, making sure we're ready to go. Uh, and we've got the whole company. We've got Bravo Company up there. And we're going we're gonna to push through. We're going to clear this village called Cotaze. Um We start clearing buildings. Um, haven't taken any contact uh, yet. Uh, and it was, it, this was really the first major engagement of that deployment because when we first got there, which I we got there in June or July, um, it was the end of poppy harvest where they grow the they grow the opium. So the Taliban doesn't want to fight when their opium fields are up. So they wait for the harvest to end, and then then it's game on. Then they, then they come out to play. So the, this was the first major operation that we had kind of after the uh, the poppy harvest. Um, we clear into a compound, and uh, I'm with a Marine squad. Uh, Sergeant Ward is the uh, squad leader from Bravo Company. And there's like four or five uh, Afghan army guys with them. And I, I go, we go into this compound and it's, you know, kind of like a, you know, big courtyard with a small building and then a couple of like little sub courtyards. We clear it out and there's nobody there. Uh, but I remember when I walked into the kitchen area, and I, it's basically the room where there's like a small fire. There was uh, a plate with eggs on it that had just been cooked, like fried eggs. Mm. And it was still warm. And I remember I was like, these guys just left. They just left and they left fast. Um, so the majority of the compound is, is cleared out. Um, and uh, a couple of my A&A guys are walking out of the compound. And a couple of them are still, you know, clearing that, you know, detailing the rest of the little nooks and crannies of this compound. So I walk outside because my lighter, I'm trying to light a cigarette and my lighter won't go. So I walk outside to one of my ANA guys, and I'm right outside this kind of compound door on the other side of this big mud wall. And uh, ANA guy gives me a light to my cigarette, and then uh, there's an explosion right on the other side of the wall. Uh, knock. We basically we go down, um, and it's just kind of uh, a, a moment of just it's silent, um, and. Everybody starts yelling. I'm yelling over the wall. Hey, are you guys okay? Are you guys okay? And I hear Ward, and he's just screaming, get the fuck in here. Um, so one thing you have to understand about saying is there's so many IDs. Um, you, were, you were kind of okay if you were in the middle of a dirt field because they tilled the fields, they plowed the fields. It's like a low probability place. You know, it's hard for them to put an IED in the middle of some random dirt clod field and, and expect the Marine to walk on it. Um, right. 
but the footpaths, uh, river crossings, canal crossings, or the interior of compounds are, those are high, you have a better chance of hitting somebody. So we were always wary when we were, we were near there. And so we had these metal detectors, a Valen metal detector, and every squad had one. Uh, and you walked in a single file line behind that guy, wherever he went. Um, and the guy behind the guy with the metal detector had a, a water bottle, like an empty water bottle full of baby powder. And he put little white lines on the ground. And you kept your right foot on the inside of the white line. That's That was our marking plan. Hmm. When we're clearing these compounds, we're clearing them behind the metal detector. The Valen is inside that compound. And we don't have another metal detector with the squad. So I go into the compound and I turn right and I see a Marine and he points inside a, like a sub courtyard. It was an open air kind of courtyard garden type thing. And I look through the door and all I can see is like soft dirt, which you don't, on the hard packed dirt, you felt more okay because you felt like you could see signs of disturbed earth. On soft sandy looking stuff, you're like, dude, they could, they could bury anything. And when there's one ID, there's always more, they, they call them secondaries, because they know as soon as a Marine steps on an ID, a corpsman and other Marine are going to be running over there and they're going to get another one. Um, I look into this courtyard and I, I, I can smell uh, the explosive, the powder, the, the smell of the explosive. It doesn't smell like a gun range per se, because it's homemade, but it's got a unique smell and I can smell blood. Um, and I can't see much of anything and all I see is soft soft packed dirt and my uh my corpsman is falling right behind me and uh i remember yelling hey can you throw me the valve and throw me the metal detector and there's just no answer and then i hear ward get the fuck in here uh and i was like shit all right it is what it is uh and i look back at doc ray i remember telling him i'm like dude back up fucking back up like 10 feet and step where step in my fucking footprints, um, and I uh, that that moment was as I know I'm like there's secondaries in here. There's gonna be a secondary in here. I was scared, uh, and I remember just kind of like having a moment to make my peace with God. And I was like, I'm I'm sorry for everything I've done. Please, if I die, just take me to heaven. Uh, and I, there's not, there's not a fiber in my body that wanted to go into that room. I was scared shitless. I was scared out of my mind. Um, but I was more scared of, I, I was like every, every ounce of my body saying, don't go in there. You're do not go in there. But there was that other side of me that was like, if, if you don't go in there, you're going to live the rest of your life knowing that you failed these guys. And there, there's something clicked in my head. And I was like, you know what? I'd rather go in here and die with these guys. I would rather do that than have to live my, the rest of my life trying to figure out why I didn't. And so right. told Ray to back up. And I went in there and I started stomping as hard as I could to try and clear a path. And I get to the first guy. I get to the next guy. Um, and it was, they were, they were hit pretty good. Um, Ward had his, uh, you know, abdominal wound, intestines out. Um, there was just, there was blood everywhere. And I kind of like, as I look, I can see where they walked into the room and kind of turned right. And I see the guy who stepped on the IED. Uh, his name's Liam DeWire. 
um, and he's got he had an assault pack on, so he's on his pack, and it, it looks to me that all four limbs are uh, are amputated, at least partially. They're mangled very bad, um, and so I'm like, I, I'm gonna walk to that farthest guy, just start taking guys, start working on guys behind me. Uh, we all carried tourniquets. Every single one of us carried four tourniquets on the deployment. That was SOP because everything was an IED. Um, I make it to I make it to Liam, and he's completely completely out. And uh, I just I'm seeing the blood. It's spraying real bad out of his uh, his arms. Uh, and uh, you know I talk about some of that training. We did a lot of uh, very tough, realistic uh, tourniquet training, uh, working up prior to this deployment. Uh, because we knew that IED threat, uh, Liam wouldn't be alive today, uh, if it weren't for that, because I was, I was scared. I was scared out of my mind. You know, I'm scared enough as it is. And now I'm like, I'm going to mess this up and not do this right. And this guy's going to die. You, you start to get in your, your own head. And so I just yeah. started putting tourniquets on him and, and it's, you know, it's true in police work and it's true in, um, in the military, you don't rise to the occasion of anything. You're going to fall down to whatever level your training is. And uh, I fell to a level of training that was sufficient uh, for me to, to, to get the tourniquets on, on Liam. Uh, and I remember as I was doing it, I, I used my, uh, I used my, uh, the better tourniquet, the soft tee, the, the little bit better tourniquet. I used those on his legs and I put the cat tourniquets on his arms. Uh, and I was working on this arm on his left arm and it snapped, uh, the windlass snapped on it. It starts bleeding again. And by now I can hear other Marines behind me working on guys. And I remember just putting my thumbs in uh, as far as I could and trying to get pressure on that, that artery. And I remember I'm screaming, give me a fucking tourniquet. Give me a tourniquet. Uh, and I hear somebody behind me. Hey, I got one. You need a tourniquet? And I, I, I fired off uh, probably a string of profanities that I'm not going to say here. <laughs> yeah, you idiot. Like, get me, get, bring it to me, dumbass. Right. Uh, and I ended up finding out after it was our battalion commander. Uh, at this point had made his way over there uh colonel savage now general savage uh testament to him he comes in here you go brother hands me the tourniquet um i get the tourniquet on on liam and then he's carrying guys out we're carrying guys out of there um i'll never i'll never forget um liam starts to wake up and i can't move him on my own at this point because his limbs are attached but not so we get we get like a tarp and we we kind of put him in it and he starts to wake up and starts to talk. And I start to like panic because I'm like, okay, I have to keep him calm because he's going to go into shock. And I don't know what to talk about. Um, but I like, I'm a big football fan, a huge football. I'm a big Raider fan. And I'm like, hey, man, do you like football? And he's like, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, who's your team? And he's like, the Giants. And I'm like, all right, man, mine's the Raiders. And he goes, fuck the Raiders. I'm like, oh. <laughs> I'm like, okay, man. And then he starts talking about he drove race cars. Um, he's a race car driver before he joined mm. the Marine. He starts talking to me about race cars. I don't know anything about race cars, but I was I was trying to talk to him, talk to him about race cars and, and uh, keep him calm. Um, Colonel Savage comes back in. Uh, another guy uh, named McCullough comes back in. We're able to get him in this tarp and pick him up. And that scream that was happening was uh, inhuman. I'll never I'll never forget it. Um, we get him out to the, the LZ, um, and I start reassessing the tourniquets. They go back in to, to make sure there's, you know, no other Marines that are, that are down. Um, I start reassessing the tourniquets, make sure there's the bleeding is still stopped. And, uh, we start taking machine gun fire 
uh, across. They they weren't they couldn't see us. They were shooting through a tree line, but they knew kind of generally where we were at. And I just remember lying on top of Liam, and I was so upset because I was like, dude, like this guy's alive, and they're gonna kill us right here in this field. Um, and they fortunately they the rounds were high, like we were we were good. Um, the the bird comes in. It's a it's a British bird. It's a CH forty seven. Um, their medevac platform, they call it Ugly, and that, that's the one where you have a mass casualty. They would send Ugly in, um, and it comes basically with an in-flight surgeon uh, on that helicopter. Mm. And uh, we're able to get, you know, all four of those Marines into that into that helicopter. Uh, and I've never uh, I've never been so thankful to see those guys. And uh, I can't I can't say enough about, you know, the crews, the flight crews for Dustoff and Pedro. Those are the two American medevac. Uh, platforms that we have and then ugly those guys uh those guys saved a lot of people um and uh they, they saved liam that day they saved every marine that was in that room lived and uh wow this, this was day one of what was like a four-day clearing operation and uh i remember you know kind of towards the end of the first day we were going to go firm in a compound uh i remember just i'm like hey like what's the update on the casualties what's the update on the casualties? they didn't have anything and then finally probably eight or nine o'clock that night they're like hey everybody's alive wow um, and that, you know, I, I was, I was covered in blood. Um, it was all over my plate carrier. It was all over my thighs and my knees, uh, my hands. Uh, and I just burned those camis uh, yeah. when we got back because uh, it smelled that, that, that metallic smell. Uh, I couldn't do anything about my plate carrier. So I uh, doused it in gasoline because I was like, it smelled to me like blood. And it was yeah. better to smell like diesel than, than for it to smell like blood. Yeah, for uh, sure. But that was uh, that was my I think uh, most difficult moment of that deployment for sure. Wow, man! But you um, you took the lead. I mean, I'm obviously many others did as well. But what you just explained, uh, knowing how scared you are, what could happen, to the point where you're talking to God and asking, "Hey, if, if I die, please take me to heaven." You're already thinking this. Yeah. Um, but you um, you did what you signed up to do, of the many things you signed up to do, but you went in, and because of your actions, um, those guys are alive. Um, I'm sure, no doubt, they they had a lot of obstacles, They uh, just everything about it, but the fact is, they survived. So, um, a lot of respect, man, for you, uh, for doing that. Thank and the you, fact yeah. that you were able to, just in a, in a crisis where you don't know anything, what, what am I, I don't know this, what this guy likes or what he follows or his hobbies, maybe, but you start talking football, you hit it off. There's a brief argument between two football teams, the, the Giants and the Raiders, yeah, yeah. you know, and the fact that uh, he talks about driving cars and you don't know anything about cars, but you're trying to, you know, work with him uh, with everything else coming at you guys, including machine gun fire, uh, man, much respect for you. Yeah, and I think during that conversation too, he he said that the Giants are going to win the Super Bowl, and they did that year. So I, I I'm still uh, I'm still in touch with oh, Liam. Wow. I always give him a hard time. I'm like, man, I should have put everything on. <laughs> should have made a wow. really made a bet. Um, and Liam's a, Liam's a great dude, and he, and he is a race car driver. He he started driving again. He uh, wow. Yeah, yeah. He's a he's a inspirational dude. Was that uh, the Super Bowl with the Patriots? Or is that a different one? Uh, it was whatever the one was after 2012. I can't remember. Oh, I forget the, 
Yeah, I lose yeah. track. Just Once the writers are out, I turn it off. I'm, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Who cares? Yeah. Who cares? Yeah. Uh, well, good, man. Good for you. Uh, that's that's incredible. You know, we're going to wrap it up here in a few minutes. Okay. But before, but before we do, well, let me back up. I'm sorry. Um, you received a Purple Heart. What what was your injury? What what happened to you? Uh, so we were we were in a vehicle mounted patrol, um, and um, there's a lot of there's. There's a lot of backstory to how I end up on that on that patrol, but um, essentially, essentially, uh, our team had a vehicle that had a mine roller, which is would defeat pressure plate mines. Um, that mine roller was never issued to our team. Uh, they would not give us one. Uh, I found hmm. one. Uh, I came up on one. Um, and so, <laughs> put it uh, to good use. I put it to good use, and so there was. Um, a contingent of Afghan National Army guys that were with a reconnaissance unit several kilometers north of our battle space that we had to go check on because they were part of our Afghan Army unit. And so uh, Lance Day and then we're like, yeah, we're just going to take your MRAP, you know, we'll take your mine roller. And I'm like, listen, I stole that mine roller fair and square. Like, if you guys are going yeah. up there, we're like, we're, we're going with you. Um, and this this stretch of road, it was known, it was a, it was a known it was not, there was, there was areas that couldn't be observed at any point by friendly forces. And it was, everybody goes up there and gets hit. Uh, everybody knows that it's a, there's IEDs all over that road. Um, and so when we, everybody was expecting to get blown up uh, on the way up to uh, the PB Al Alcatraz was the name of the uh, base we were driving to. Um, so much so that uh, Lance Day kicked Brian Vandenberg out of the, uh, vehicle commander spot out of the shotgun spot. He's like, well, if that Vic's getting hit, I'm going to be with him. And Vandenberg was pissed off because he wanted to be with us. And we drive up this road and I'm like, I'm the turret gunner in it. Uh, and it was like, it, it was eerie. You look at it's, it's, it's not paved. It's a dirt road, soft dirt. You bury an ID anywhere. There's oil slicks and, and pieces of MRAPs and tires everywhere. Um, and so we were just, we were, we were ready. We were, it's, it's coming. And I remember I told, uh, Mel, Mel Grejo, we called him Mel. I'm like, Hey man, you got hit. Just keep your arms straight. So we don't, we don't roll this thing, take your foot off the gas and then it'll stop. We make it all the way up to Alcatraz and nothing happens. Um, we do our, you know, we engage with the, the Afghan soldiers up there. We, we get them what they need. We turn around to come back and Brian, uh, is, just complaining to, to Lance. He's like, I'm going to ride with my team. I want to be, it's my team. I want to be. And so finally Lance gives up, go oh, fine, you know, ride in the vehicle. You know, we, we already drove up. We were, we were okay. Maybe we're, maybe we're okay. We're coming down the road. And, uh, the last thing I, I, I remember, uh, there's like pre pre incident indicators, right? There was people out. There was, you know, there's people out when we were driving up. When we turn this one corner, all of a sudden it's like a ghost town. There's just nobody mm. anywhere. Nothing's moving. It was just, it was just eerie. Something I, I remember every hair on my arms stood up and I felt wrong. And I remember I'm sitting in the turret. I just start kicking the back of Mel's seat. I'm like, go, 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 you know, hammer it. Um, Mel hits the gas and then it was like a lightning and a power button. And I wake up in the, the battalion uh, aid station. Um, oh, wow. So we had, um, and I was not unconscious that long. I was unconscious fairly briefly, but I know I have no memory of, uh, basically anything that happens the rest of that, that day until we get back. But, um, sure enough, we had turned that corner. There was a, uh, it wasn't a pressure plate. It was command detonated with like a wire buried in the ground. 
uh, 60 pounds of homemade explosive, which is a lot. That's enough maybe to, uh, to kill an MRAP, but, um, you know, Mel hits the gas and that thing blows up onto the rear axle and not directly, uh, it doesn't center punch us. Yeah. Um, I got ejected out of the turret. Um, and there's a system, it's got like a gunner's harness. It's like a seatbelt for the gun. It keeps you strapped to the, the vehicle. And I hated putting it on because it was uncomfortable and it, it, it just irritated me. I thought it wasn't cool. Um, yeah. And our yeah. battalion came out with a policy. If, if the gunner's not wearing his, his harness, everybody in the vehicle's in trouble. And well, hmm. the lieutenant's in my vehicle. So he's like, you're wearing it. I'm not arguing with you, put it on. Uh, I'd, I'd be dead without it. Um, so I, like I said, I don't have any, all, all of my like recollection of what happens after I, the bomb goes off is based on what Brian told me, but basically he wakes up and nobody can see anything in the vehicle and I'm gone. Uh, he looks back and then he, he sees my, my boot hanging over the, the lip of the turret and he comes up and, uh, I essentially go through the buttstock of the 240, hit my head probably on the, on the, uh, the armor of the turret and get whiplashed into the, the roof of the vehicle. Um, Brian drags me back into the vehicle and I, and I eventually wake up and I'm just mumbling gibberish, whatever. Um, but uh, yeah, that was, that was, that was it. Uh, I'm very fortunate. Uh, seen a lot of guys suffer very egregious injuries from, uh, you know, losing limbs and, and eyesight and, uh, you know, it could have been good thing you, much worse. Good thing you followed that mandate. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. You know, yeah, I get it. So, well, good. I'm glad uh, you're, you are here today to uh, talk with us considering that. So, um, but you know what? Some, you acted on your instinct. Something didn't seem right. You, your gut told him to punch it. Had he not punched it, it may have been, like you said, a direct hit right underneath. Yep. Yeah. So, wow. All right. So, uh, now we're going to wrap it up here, but before we do, I want to talk to you about your, uh, nonprofit that you started. Yeah. And I, th I think it's very important, uh, that as I mentioned at the very beginning, um, as a result of, um, the, you know, Afghanistan withdrawal, uh, you founded a nonprofit, um, which is called Allied Extract. Why don't you just tell us what that's, what's that about? What do you guys do? Yeah. So, uh, the the end of the uh, the war in Afghanistan obviously uh, impacted a lot of the the people that fought and bled there. Um, it, it was uh, it was not easy to watch people fall off of planes. Uh, it mm. was you know many of those people were interpreters or uh, Afghan National Army soldiers who had uh, you know fought fought for our country essentially. Um, so several veterans uh, and myself we got together and we created a it was ad hoc at the time. Uh, but we basically started trying to help these interpreters and we were able to help rescue several dozen interpreters, uh, get them out of there. Um, and uh, we have since grown into a actual 501c3, a nonprofit. Um, you know, they kind of, the, as things winded down with Afghanistan and there was no longer any, anybody willing to donate, we, uh, we decided, hey, we're gonna shut it down or we're gonna keep going. And we, we decided we had this mechanism to help people affected uh, so we kept it going. Um, we're, we're very active uh, uh, in Ukraine right now. Uh, we do medical uh, extractions of civilian populace from uh, essentially, um, you know, embattled regions. We, we partner with several other uh, uh, NGOs to do that. Um, 
and uh, you know we've sponsored several orphanages. Uh, we've shipped several thousand tons of uh, life-saving equipment over there, uh, and it's it's a really cool thing. It's just a bunch of veterans that uh, basically everybody involved is a veteran or a medical professional that uh, kind of like our 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 unofficial motto is uh, you don't need permission to do the right thing, um, hmm. and I don't need right. to be working for the military or the government or anybody else to see that there's a problem here and there's people that need help and uh, we can do stuff to help them. So that's what we do. Wow. That's awesome. That's incredible. Um, and do you know from Afghanistan, how many people you've rescued or, you know, you've extracted uh, between us with, <laughs> with several other organizations and that, 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 the whole Afghan withdrawal thing could probably be another podcast in and of its own. Oh yeah. I mean, we've yeah. affected thousands of, of, in some way or another, Allied Extract has been involved in thousands of those processes in terms of like visa application or, um, you know, making sure that their their paperwork was good. Uh, when the, the crisis was happening, uh, a couple hundred uh, men, women and children uh, that were wow. all, um, you know, directly involved with the United States and were vulnerable. Um, and needed to be rescued yeah. and taken out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. Good for you, man. Uh, you and your team doing that. The fact that you kept it going when you weren't sure if you should, and you did. Yeah. And um, you're still doing it today in yep. Ukraine. Yep. Um, so if people want to learn about your nonprofit, what, where can they go to find out more information? Your website, social media? Yeah, events? we we have a, we have social media. Uh, we're Allied Extract. Uh, or you go to our website. That's probably the best way. And all the links are there. It's www.alliedextract.org, and you can see what we're about. And, you know, we just got our guide star rating, which I've learned a lot about, like, 501s and nonprofits. And, you know, it's been a learning process for me because I'm a, a dumb grunt. But uh, we have a platinum <laughs> rating and guide star uh, because we don't you – know, we, we turn around every donation we get, and we, we use it for operations. Nobody's uh, nobody's uh, skimming anything off the top. I'm very, very proud of that organization. And like I said, it's just a bunch of veterans trying to help people. That's incredible, man. If it wasn't for you guys, you know, and some other organizations such as yours, uh, those people would still be stranded and uh, in jeopardy, considering yeah. what they had done to help uh, the Americans and the allies while we were over there. So uh, well done, man. Very well done. Thank you. Um, before we wrap up, is there anything you would like to say or add? No, I mean, uh, I, I, you know, it's, it's great to be here. It's great to talk to you about it. Uh, you know, I'm very fortunate. The Marine Corps has been very good to me. The Burbank Police Department has been very good to me. Very rewarding uh, career there. And, uh, you know, I love what you're doing. I love the podcast. And uh, I look forward to, uh, to seeing more episodes. Well, I appreciate it, man. And, you know, the one thing is, uh, as you know, and others, our very first um, episode was with uh, Chief Mike Albanese, your chief of yep. the Burbank Police Department. And when he and I were talking prior to his interview, um, I don't even think I asked him. I think he just threw it out there. He's like, hey, you need to talk to one of my officers. I'm like, okay, so tell me about your officer. He's like, a Marine. Uh, he was in Afghanistan. He, he was very, very proud of you. And I'm not sure you know that, but he definitely was very proud of you and um, all that you've done and the fact that you're still, you know, that you became a police officer there. But um, if it wasn't for Chief Albanese, um, quite honestly, probably would never have uh, met you. And I'm glad that we were able to communicate. I know you're very busy with work, your nonprofit, um, 
uh, your family, your children, your wife. Uh, so the fact that you took uh, you know some time out of your day today on your day off, by the way, uh, I really do appreciate that. Uh, so thank you for that. You know, and you you're a young guy, um, but in your in your young age, you've done so much, you've accomplished so much uh, that um, the work that you've done, your service to your country, service to your community service to your, you know, being a representative of your family um, and what you are doing with uh, your nonprofit, like I said, staying in touch with those Marines, um, staying in touch with the family of um, uh, the Lance Corporal. Um, it's in your blood, and um, you should be very proud of everything that you've accomplished. I appreciate that, sir. Thank you. Well, it was a pleasure meeting you, and uh, I can't wait till we get this thing uh, published and posted. And uh, I think a lot of people are going to benefit from hearing your story. And I encourage people to, if, if they listen to this or they watch this, um, share it with other people. Uh, because if they've enjoyed it, they've gained something from it, no doubt others will as well. So uh, thank you, sir, for all that you're doing, all that you've done. And uh, we are forever, uh, forever grateful. And thank you for being a guest on Behind the Line podcast. Anytime, Tim. All right, sir. Thank you so much. Yes, sir. You too. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you like the show, please follow and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. For the show notes from each episode, visit BehindTheLinePod.com. If you want to support the show and hear more from our first responders and military veterans, head over to Patreon.com slash BehindTheLine. I'll see you on the next one.